just read. And we're going to keep coming back to it. But let's pray as we come to God's word. Father, what we know not, teach us. And what we have not, give us. And what we are not, make us. For the sake of your Son, our Savior. Amen. Well, this morning we're beginning a new section in the book of Exodus. If you're visiting this morning, we've been working through this Old Testament book. It's a key book. And so please open your Bibles again to Exodus chapter 25. And you'll find that on page 83 of the church Bibles. And so if you're interested in fabrics, gemstones, precious metals, crafts, construction, even camping, then this is going to be a real treat for you. And even if you're not remotely interested in any of these things, please pay close attention to these remaining chapters of Exodus because these chapters are here to prepare us for Jesus. What I hope we'll see as we complete this little mini-series is that Jesus has been portrayed for us in these chapters. That's what makes it exciting and precious. Um, They prefigure, they point us to the person of Christ and the work of Christ. Actually, they show us the whole purpose of our salvation, the whole purpose of our lives, in fact. In a very visual way, the tabernacle taught Israel what it takes to draw near to God. So this section begins, this new section, chapter 25. So let's read the first nine verses of Exodus chapter 25. The Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You are to receive the offering for me from everyone whose heart prompts them to give. These are the offerings you are to receive from them, gold, Silver and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and fine linen, goat hair, ram skins dyed red, another type of durable leather, acacia wood, olive oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones, and other gems to be mounted on the ephod and the breastpiece. Then let them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. So there are 16 chapters left in the book of Exodus. Eleven of those have to do with this large tent called the tabernacle. And uh, it covers also the priests who are working in the tabernacle. Eleven chapters. And if you read the whole thing in one sitting, it seems quite repetitive. Chapters 25 to 31 uh, consists of God telling Moses how the tabernacle is to be made. Lots of details about the materials and the dimensions of the furniture and the coverings and the placements in, uh, of all the parts. And then in chapters 35 to 40, you get a virtual repeat of all that detail as you hear about the workmen actually making it. 
And then Moses kind of inspecting what they made. And then finally, Moses setting it all up for the very first time. And you'll never guess what happened next. Well, you're going to have to come along and find out. Or you can read on in your Bibles. Why so much detail? What's going on here? Uh, Why does God inspire the author of Exodus to repeat all of that information? Well, in the Hebrew language, this is a way of saying this is very important. Why? Well, look again at uh, 25 verse 8. Then let them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. This is no ordinary tent. This was God's tent. And my two points this morning kind of flow out of verse 8. Firstly, I want us to see that God desires to dwell among his people. God desires to dwell among his people. See, chapter 25 begins this new section in the book of Exodus. There's, there's a three-part structure in the whole of the letter. Chapters 1 to 18 about the God who delivers, the incredible events that we covered, the ten signs and wonders uh, that finally led to the culmination of the Passover night and how they were freed from slavery, how they crossed the Red Sea, how they watched the, um, the Egyptian army that was trying to take them back get absolutely destroyed his miraculous provision in the, in the wilderness. But you know what? That's not the high point of the book. I mean, that's where movies tend to focus. That seems very exciting. But that's not the high point of the book. And then you've got chapters 90 to 24 about the God who demands. And uh, we are there at Sinai, this fiery mountain, and we're hearing the voice of God speaking perfectly comprehensible Hebrew as he lays out uh, his desires for his people of how they ought to live. But even that is not the high point of the book. The high point of the book and the point of the whole Exodus is right here in chapters 25 to 40. It is about the God who dwells. That is why the writer kind of lingers over the fabric and uh, over the, the stones and the materials, the the altar and the lamps and the incense, because everything about this detail is shouting to us, Emmanuel, God is with us. That's the point. That's the repetition. God desires to dwell among his people. This has been the great purpose of all the great act of redemption of the past. So turn to chapter 29 and look at verse 45. Chapter 29, verse 45. Then I will dwell among the Israelites and be their God. They will know that I am the Lord, their God who brought them out of Egypt so that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord, their God. This is so thrilling, I think. This is the the purpose of salvation. Here God makes it plain. 
The great purpose of salvation, the, the great blessing of the Christian life is to know the Lord God. To live our lives in a personal and loving relationship with the Creator God. This actually meets our greatest needs and desires. As Augustine, the great church father, wrote in his prayer, Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you, he prays. And the incredible message of the Bible is that God desires to dwell among his people. His will is that we would find our rest and our significance and our satisfaction and our joy in him. That intimacy that Adam and Eve enjoyed with God in the garden, uh, that he would come near to them at the end of the day and converse with them. That intimacy that was destroyed by our rebellion uh, is the intimacy that God is committed to restoring once more. And God has initiated all of this. I am the Lord their God who brought them out of Egypt so that I might dwell among them. What an incredible thing. What a surprising thing. Don't you think? Here was a small, at this point, nomadic people who were living in tents in the wilderness. And the great God of the universe, the God who transcends time and space, identified himself with them. Make me a tent so that I can live with you in your tents. And his tent would be in the middle uh, of the camp. All the tribes would be camped around this tent in the middle. All the elements of the tabernacle were portable. Each of the pieces of furniture were designed with rings and poles to make it easier to transport them. Wherever they went, God would be close to them. In fact, as they packed it all up, he would lead the way at the front. And when they stopped, he would center it. They would center all around him at the end of their day of travel. He was going to travel with them through the wilderness. He was going to protect them. He was going to guide them. He was going to bless them with his presence. This is what the tent is all about. And that's why it's exciting. You might be thinking, that's a very weird Bible reading for church. Well, do you get the point now? This is about God being amongst us as his people. If heaven is where God is, then the tabernacle was a manifestation of heaven on earth. This is heaven coming down to earth in physical form. It was the point of meeting between God and his people. I couldn't stop thinking about the inner tent that first goes over the tabernacle uh, yesterday. Um, made of fine linen uh, with uh, twisted into it um, blue and purple and scarlet yarn. Why? Why blue yarn and scarlet yarn? Purple yarn. Couldn't stop thinking about that. I've got a couple of theories. But why don't you pray and have a think about it and let me, you know, we're going to come back to the veil. But I've got some ideas about this. 
and it's blowing me away. But I'd love to hear you, because, you know, you're supposed to think about the details and how it points to Jesus. Embroidered on those, on that inner veil, that curtain, the, the tent piece, the front curtain between the Holy of Holies, is the cherubim. And the last time we heard about the cherubim was after Adam and Eve in their uh, after they uh, rejected the word of God and were cast out of Eden, cherubim were placed over the Garden of Eden with a flashing sword to stop them going back in. And so the cherubim are a warning sign that it's dangerous to come into the presence of a holy God. Everything about this is saying this is heaven come down to earth. This is where God resides. It is a God who actually is... A God who wants to be close by. It speaks of his imminence. But it's also a sanctuary. It's a holy place. This is a transcendent God who is separate from his holy people. You can't just walk into this tent any way, any time you want. There, there's this very special and specific way that you can approach. We're going to discover as we go on in these chapters. It's guarded by the cherubim. There's warning. This is heaven touching down to earth. Looking at the big picture, this is just such a glorious thing. You see the materials, they're expensive, they're ornate. This is the best tent in the, on the campsite. This is the fanciest RV. Um, because this is the tent of the glorious King of Kings. There's no greater privilege and glory for a people than to have God dwelling amongst them. They were the people of God. Saved for God's glory. You see, this book starts with them as an enslaved people, cruelly forced to build things for the glory of Pharaoh. Now it ends with them being a free people, experiencing the blessings of God, and freely invited to build a dwelling place for the glory of God. Do you see the change? Do you see the point of salvation? Now God had other Houses in which he lived among his people after they moved into the promised land. The tabernacle tent became a physical stone temple in the capital city of Jerusalem. First built by King Solomon and then Ezra and Nehemiah. And then the temple was built by Herod the Great, which is the one that the Lord Jesus went into. Now, the Lord Jesus loved the temple. He called it my father's house. And twice he cleared the temple courts because of the awful commercialization that was defiling it. He had zeal for his father's house. But you see, all of this stuff about the tabernacle is prefiguring a greater spiritual reality. And right at the start of John's account, um, we learn about this. John 1.14, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. Literally, that word is tabernacled. The Word became flesh. Heaven came down to earth. Tabernacling amongst us. And the Apostle John says, We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is where heaven and earth meet. Truly God, truly man, two natures intricately woven together 
in one person. The tent was divided into the holy place and the most holy place, divided by this curtain veil. The most holy place was kind of a perfect cube. Uh, Its walls would have been golden, and at the center of it is a golden box, the ark where the The covenant law was kept. The Ten Commandments were kept, amongst other things we're going to find out. And on top of it was the atonement cover. You see, from the outside, it looked a big tent, but didn't look that special. Uh, You'd have looked externally. You'd just basically seen a leather tent. But actually inside is a revelation of God's glory. Doesn't that just prefigure Jesus? Um, Isaiah 53 verse 2 tells us that he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. If you had been in Palestine, if you'd been there in the first century when Jesus walked in the streets, you could have easily walked walk past this person and, and, and just, it was just another person. But we've been learning in the evening in our series in Luke about Peter, James and John who get to be eyewitnesses of the, of the majesty of of Jesus, he was transfigured before them. Just in a sense, it was an unveiling of the glory of his divinity shining out in glorious lights. Wow. This tabernacle points to this person. And the purpose of his coming was to make a way. Make a way through his own sacrifice so that we as sinful people could come into the presence of a holy God and enjoy fellowship with him. His purpose was to glorify the Father by coming to rescue uh, hell-bound sinners and save us for heaven. So that we could come creatures of dust and enter into heaven itself. He tells his disciples, we, it was read to us by Rachel earlier, uh, that he was going to prepare a place for them in the Father's house so that one day they too could um, make their home in the eternal dwelling place of God. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. He is the only way to the Father. Let them make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you, God says to Moses. There's something about this tabernacle that points to spiritual reality. All the details matter. I'm not sure I understand all the details. I'm still thinking about those yarns and those colors. And you can have a think about it too over the coming weeks. But there's something about that. Every detail matters. It's part of God's design. And so over about nine Sundays... We're going to slow down and consider each part of the tabernacle. We're going to see, consider each part, the furniture and the placements. And we're going to seek to understand, firstly, what it teaches us about what it takes for us to draw near to God. How can we as sinful people draw near to God? Well, it's, it's, it's pictured here in this tabernacle. Secondly, how does it point us to the person and the work of Jesus Christ? How does it point us forward to the new creation that he's bringing us to in his return? It's the great theme at the end of Revelation is, look, the dwelling place of God is with man. 
This is where we're heading. We get a taste of it now in our life in Christ now here on earth, but actually the, the fullness and reality of it is yet to come. So how do we experience God dwelling with us? Well, the New Testament makes it clear that we, he doesn't dwell in houses now. Uh, Stephen, uh, in his last sermon, says, However, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. So where does God live? Well, there are two places in the New Testament where it says he lives. Firstly, God dwells in the hearts of those who trust him. That's where he dwells. He dwells in the hearts of those who trust him. It was in our New Testament reading again, John chapter 14, verse 23. Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. I'm hoping that this room is full of people who have made their hearts a place of dwelling for the living God. And if you haven't, do it today. Come and talk to me. I'd happily let you know how you, the living God can dwell in your heart and life today. Uh, the Apostle Paul makes some very practical applications to the Christians in Corinth about how they, um, they behave with regard to their sex lives. And he reminds them about the status of their body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? God dwells in our hearts, in the hearts of those who trust him by his Spirit. The second place that God dwells, the New Testament says, is wherever Spirit-filled Christians meet together in the name of the Lord Jesus. So the Lord Jesus said, For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with you. We could meet anywhere, right? And that would be the dwelling place of God if we're brothers and sisters in Christ together. That would be the dwelling place of God. You don't need a cool building with a spire. You certainly don't need an organ to be a church. It's wherever you gather together in his name, there God is present and dwelling amongst his people in a very special way. As you come to him, First Peter says, the living stone rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. This is who we are, church. We are the temple of the living God. God is dwelling right here with us today. And so if God desires to dwell with his people, my second point is quite simply this. Will we make a dwelling place for God? He desires to dwell with us. Will we make a dwelling place for God? So in the letter uh, that uh, Jesus asked his disciple John to write to this self-satisfied, self-deluded church in Laodicea, he says this, Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. They're together, but Jesus is outside the church building. They haven't even noticed. He's outside the meeting place, and he's knocking on the door. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Whether as a whole church or for each person individually, there's a choice on our part about whether we're going to welcome him into our lives. 
Are we going to welcome Jesus into our homes? Are we going to welcome Jesus into our church so that we experience and enjoy fellowship with the risen Lord Jesus Christ? To even ask the question, it's like, of course you want Jesus in, surely? And if your answer is you're not sure, talk to me because this is crazy. This is why God created, this is why you exist. That Christ would dwell in your heart and you can become fully human to the praise and the glory of God. He's standing at the door, he's knocking, he's speaking, he's calling to us, he wants in on our lives. Have you heard the voice of Jesus calling you? Have you opened the door to welcome him in? I really hope you have, friends. As I say, you could do it today if you've not done so. If he's calling you today, do it today. Don't delay. Because there's such a beautiful promise in in, uh, Revelation. If you invite Jesus to come in, he will come in and eat with us. Fellowship with God through his son Jesus. The closest and most intimate relationship is possible with the risen Lord Jesus Christ today. Will we make our lives a dwelling place for God? See, the choice is ours every day, isn't it? Am I going to start my day by turning to God in prayer through the Lord Jesus Christ? Am I going to spend time listening to God by opening His Bible and reading it? Am I going to claim His promises? Am I going to cast before Him my anxieties and my fears? Am I going to start the day with worshiping this God in my home before I head into the busyness of my life? Am I going to turn to Him each mealtime with praise and thanksgiving, recognizing that this meal came because He's so kind, He's provided for me again? Am I going to call upon Him when the burdens get heavy? Am I going to ask Him for wisdom when I don't know what to do? Will we open the door of our lives to Jesus this week? Will we make it a priority to meet with His people? so that we can enjoy that promise of his, in a sense, his special promise of his presence and fellowship when the church gather together. If we choose to stay at home when we could come in person, it's a statement. Not only that, well, it's, it's, it's quite a statement, isn't it? I'm not so keen to hang out with you, Jesus, amongst your people. A bit inconvenient. Rather be at home. Obviously, we've got brothers and sisters who'd love to be here, but they're too infirm. They can't be here. But if you could be here, why would you choose not to be here? How mundane our view of church can become. Have we forgotten? We come to meet with the living God. Shall I go to God's group tonight? Jesus is going to be there. You want to go meet with Jesus? Oh, it's a prayer meeting. Oh, I can skip prayer meetings. Jesus is going to be there. We get to be with him amongst his people. What a privilege to gather around the Lord's table, to break bread and drink the cup and receive by faith the the Lord Jesus Christ in all his goodness and grace afresh through this thing that he's given us. Do this in remembrance of me. For where two or three are gathered together, there I am, in the midst of them. 
Why would we miss out on that opportunity, friends? I was hearing about a man this week who's been invited to be in attendance at the king's coronation. He was rather excited about it. Would you pass up that opportunity to be there and to meet the king? You just go, oh, I don't know, a bit busy. Can't be bothered. God wants to draw near to us. God wants to live amongst his people. But we should note from Exodus 25 that this offer is still dependent on them responding. Look back at chapter 25 again. Tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. Bring me an offering. You are to receive the offering for me. All this stuff, the gold, the silver, the bronze, the fabrics, the wood, the oil, the incense. Where did this slave people get all this stuff? Well, do you remember that the Egyptians just threw it at them to get them out of the door? They plundered the Egyptians on Passover night as they left. All these goodies came to them, not because they earned it. It was given to them as they left. And God says, I'm going to give you an opportunity to offer back to me these things if you want me to dwell amongst you. God desires to dwell amongst us. Will we make a dwelling place for him? Do we long that God's glory would be manifested in the hearts of people who are currently lost? That's why we give, isn't it? We get to give of our resources to see the spreading gospel message so that churches get planted, so that people get reached, so that God is glorified in the city. Now, this building is not the sanctuary. We're the sanctuary. But you know what? Every time I walk up the street and I look at this building, I just think back to what an amazing thing God did here. In 2011, we made the decision as a church to sell our building in Rose Street and to buy this building. In 2016, we, we began meeting this building, and we, when we completed the project, there was no debt whatsoever. In fact, we were 200 quid in credit. It was, re, it was incredible. People gave so generously, freely. It was a free will offering. No, nobody went around and put a gun to anybody's head. People gave freely to this project and generously so we could buy and refurbish this building. Why did they do that? Because we're people who want to invest our money and resources to see God glorified in the city. We want to see many more people in this city become a new sanctuary of the living God as they come to put their trust and faith in Jesus for the very first time. Praise God. What a privilege to be engaged in this work together. Standing orders, retiring offerings, legacies, thank offerings, they are profoundly part of our spiritual worship. Tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You are to receive the offering from me from everyone whose heart prompts them to give. I'm going to invite the band up. And let's pray. Father, we turn to you to ask that out of your glorious riches, you would strengthen us with power through your Spirit in our inner being, 
so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. That as a whole church, we would be rooted and established in love and have power together to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, to know this love that surpasses knowledge so that we may be filled with the measure of your fullness. We ask this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's stand and praise him. We come through Jesus.